Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Save the world. Yeah. Absolutely, Neil. I, I just think it came down to, of course, it... He, I got the part also because there was a naivete um, uh, about Sam J. Jones in, his, in that those years, 22 years old, 23, and of course for Flash Gordon. And when it came to somebody in trouble, you know, even Sam J. Jones or Flash Gordon, we don't call board meetings if there's if somebody's getting attacked right now. We don't call the board meeting and call in advisors. We. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and Celebrity Interviews Live from the Grotto with Greg Hanna. Greg, what's going on, man? How are you? I am beside myself with excitement because we're going to talk to one of my absolute favorite actors ever, Flash Gordon. Absolutely. So again, Sam Jones, Flash Gordon. Sam, when we talked the last time, welcome to the show. When we talked the last time, you know what blew me away was ultimately how of a humble man you are. But really, I wish I could have had about 52 stories of watching Flash Gordon because I literally watched it maybe 20 or 25 times the movie. And there's not many movies in my life that I watched that many times. Why do you think so many people watch your movie over and over again? Well, first of all, guys, thank you for having me. Well, I think the question is, yes, it's a great point. It's why is Flash Gordon still relevant? I mean, we, we filmed this 40, what is it, 43 years ago, came out 42 years ago. I think he's relevant, uh, uh, relevant because he's just a guy. So the world, every, every uh, man, woman, and child, uh, they'll look at this character, Flash Gordon, and go, wait a minute. Oh, my gosh, these challenges. He's faced with adversity. Oh, he's vulnerable. How's he going to do it? He has no superpowers. And then he has six, he, you know, he comes in, he helps, uh, he helps in it, he defends innocence, he neutralizes the threat and or brings them to justice. So I think they say, well, wait a minute, he's doing this. He's just a guy, he has no superpowers. If he can do that, then by golly, I can do it too. And I think that's why he's relevant. And I think that's the message. And yes. <laughs> totally love that. I mean, it's like, just like you said, it's like the underdog winning, and that just makes everybody feel great. You know, one of the favorite ones I loved, you know, later James Bond that you had fought James Bond, you know, Timothy Dalton, you know, <laughs> as a, as the prince. And uh, that was an amazing fight, you know, with, with the tilting, you know, little platter that you guys were on. Yeah. And you know, what was that scene like doing that? I mean, how did they do that? It looks like it was real, but. I mean, you just standing in a green screen, or how, how do they do that? No, we, we we had blue screen back then, but there was there was really no the only no that was all that was a that was the battle disc. It was a rotating disc, and when it was elevated in its highest elevation, I think it was about twenty five feet. Wow. So what you saw when the camera looked down, you saw infinity space, um, but we had just a bunch of stacked boxes, and when we fell, we fell quite a bit. We fell onto these stacked boxes, which was quite funny, but it actually worked. Remember, <laughs> we're going back to 1979. Uh, but, yeah, we had three technicians. We had uh, two operating the um, the spikes, two different sections of spikes. And then, of course, we had the other technician operating the tilt of the of the battle disc. So yeah. it, it wasn't so much that we – I mean, we, we rehearsed it for weeks, but uh, – if we had rolled and tumbled onto the spikes, of course, we wouldn't have been hurt because they were actually, it was an ingenious idea. It was um, bicycle pumps that they used for the shaft, yeah. you know, hollow bicycle pumps, uh, this metal, and the, the tips of the spikes were a hard rubber. So if we had rolled on it, then we'd have to stop production and repair it. So, yeah. but Timothy was great. You know, James Bond, he wasn't James Bond then, of course. No. Nope. We, we, we had that great chemistry and camaraderie and conflict of, you know, being representing um, England and 
he and then of course me representing America. So so we brought uh, a lot of that history, good history into it, and uh, just had a lot of fun. Oh, that was great. It de definitely does. And I said I have so many favorite scenes of the movie, but what about for the time you shot it and how Greg and I love it so much? You said the ordinary, that you did it, you were able to do it, uh, Sam, just out of nowhere, meaning that you were just a guy. I think that's one reason, but I also think that science fiction at that time and just the different things and how you were able to save the world and how you had so many challenges to try to save that world, right? There's so many, you just did it. Kind of like how we had to get on Zoom right now. There was complications, but you saved it. You saved yourself. Yeah. That's the character, Flash Gordon. And I think that he is the only superhero I've ever, heard, I guess, have dealt with that really had no superpowers and yet could be able to save the world. The athlete, the football star, and how he thought he could conquer everything. And he had to figure everything out and had to ask for other people's help. It wasn't just, and that's the other part of a suit being a leader. Leadership is what Flash Gordon is as well. How he was able to become a leader to save the world. Yeah, absolutely, Neil. I, I just think it came down to, of course, it, he. I got the part also because there was a naivete um, uh, about Sam J. Jones in his in that those years, twenty-two years old, twenty-three, and of course for Flash Gordon. And when it came to somebody in trouble, you know, even Sam J. Jones or Flash Gordon, we don't call board meetings. If there's if somebody's getting attacked right now, we don't call the board meeting and call in advisors. We, we you know, unless we have time to plan. Usually Flash Gordon didn't have a whole lot of time to plan. So we just uh, reacted. We, so his character just reacted. And I, I think that's the other message he sends. If it's if something is happening right now, uh, and there's no time to plan, you you gotta you gotta go with your your best instincts. And usually, the best instincts is common sense, practical thinking. That's it. And if you have the time to plan, you call in your advisors and you seek counsel on any issue. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's uh, so true. I mean, be flexible, adapt, and overcome. I mean, I think those are the traits of any person who's uh, getting through life well, or an entrepreneur, business owner, a leader, yourself, an author. Uh, I, I see you as an entrepreneur as well. Well, thank uh, you. Yeah, certainly with your with your new uh, comic book, or you know, what do they call them? Graphic novels now. I'm not sure well, what yeah, to call they, it. But... And, and, yeah, thanks. I'm so excited. We we I collaborated with uh, Rob Archie, writer. Uh, an artist, and then, of course, Joe Archie as well. And uh, this is my first comic book, uh, a.k.a. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a graphic novel. So what's the simple definition of a graphic novel? This is a 54-page comic book, guys. And the title is called Sam J. Jones Saves the Galaxy. Okay, which I love, you know. I absolutely love. So, I mean, and what we do it... back to the Neil Haley Show and also the media giant effect. And I'm first excited to welcome the program author, celebrity author, Paul Hollis, author of the Hollow Man series. Paul, how are you? And I know you're excited about our guest. I am too. And this is the first time ever, even though I've had, you know, actor, I mean, I've had sing people sing on my show, show, but I never saw the awards right there. He knows what he's doing. Aren't you excited, Paul? I am very excited. Yeah. All I, right. I so I have hear, David Milburn, everything about Emmy it. Award winner, three time Emmy Award winner. Hey. We can see it right there. You're not lying about it, right? There it is, David. Right. <laughs> well, David Milburn, yeah, how are you, David? I'm very grateful. Thank you for having me here. Really. <laughs> Absolutely. So look at those, those Emmys. Now, did you ever, when you started out in your career, think that you would be Emmy Award winning? 
you know, as a little boy, I always watched those award shows and thought, oh, my God, you know, it was a, 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 a situation where I would try to manifest, you know, I'd try to say, yes, I will be there one day. I will be there one day. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's it's um, I'm very grateful to have been there. So uh, I thank you for pointing those out. So so how did it start your career? How did, how did um, it get well, I was a, a, a kid actor. uh doing commercials for McDonald's. I, I was the counter boy for glasses to go. Do you remember that? Uh, where you would get a soda and you got the glass and you got- You're talking about like Grimace and all those? Yeah, yeah that was mine, yeah. Glasses to go, glasses to go. McDonald's has McDonald's and glasses to go. Get the mayor, think back and even Ronald. A different glass every week at McDonald's. That was, it. that was awesome, David. I, you, do you still have that on YouTube or stuff? Your commercial? Oh, I, you know, I don't know. It was so long ago, but but from that point, uh, my I did their next campaign. I did remember when they had uh, swirl ice cream, and you got to keep the glass bowl. So they called yeah. it Sunday Smile, and I was a Sunday Smile for them. So you know, my my dad was a drummer, and um, when kids came along. He had to quit drumming and, 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 you know, get a career that paid more money. And he always said to me, David, you're making these great, this great money with these campaigns and everything. Why don't you go into it? Why don't you give it everything you got? And he said to me, I don't want you to end up 40 years old thinking, what if, what if I would have given it everything I got? So I did not end up 40 years old wondering if I had ever given it everything I got because I, I am out there. I've been there. This has been my career. My so, so, so tell me specifically highlights of your career. Would you say are the ones that people would know you most? Well, I'll tell you my first film, Slumber Party Massacre, uh, was a Roger Corman film and it became a, a cult favorite, uh, two, two sequels. And still to this day, I sign autographs. I go to these conventions and I sign autographs of people you know, this I, I was 15 years old. I, I, you know, this was so long ago <laughs> that I marvel that I get to meet these fans that somehow this film made such an impact uh, on them. And uh, I remember when they were honoring Roger Corman at the Academy um, a few years ago, I was there uh, for another uh, thing. And, and uh, I, I was going over to Roger's um, table. I was going to say, you know, oh, uh, Roger, hey, David Milburn. He goes, before I got that out, he goes, David Milburn, Slumber Party Massacre. He's 83 years old, or was at the time. He's older now. And uh, I was just so honored because then he put me in his second film uh, called Sorceress, which we shot down in uh, uh, Mexico City at Churubusco Studios. And that time, every day in the uh, commissary, we were next to Arnold Schwarzenegger, and, and they were shooting the first Conan the Barbarian at the time. But... Uh, you know, from there, uh, you know, I played Lance Hurd on General Hospital. I played John Stamos' best friend. I moved into uh, nighttime television. And then then came along Movie of the Weeks. And I played everyone's good husband and bad husband, uh, you know, past obsessions, uh, an, an accidental Christmas, which Cynthia Gibb was my wife, uh, a fatal reunion, Erica Laniac was my my wife, you know, I've I've really run the game, and then sci-fi and ABC Family. I've just been a journeyman actor, guys. That's what I. But the, but that's that's but working actor. It's a good deal, right? Well, it is a good deal, and uh, I learned how to storytell, and I learned how to fix bad scripts, and I learned how to to be even better with great actors opposite me. I was in Gods and Monsters, which won an Academy Award. I played Sir E. McKellen's doctor in, in that. I was nominated for three Academy Awards and won one for the director, uh, Bill Condon. And I, I just feel that uh, I've been grateful. I've been grateful and lucky, And uh, but it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work. And when I moved into, I, I haven't really moved into, I'm still an actor, but I started writing, I started producing, I started uh, directing. And um, when people say, well, do you, do you miss acting? Well, acting's an amazing craft. Studied with Lee Strasberg, graduated from Northwestern. Uh, my parents were really behind me in getting my training. Um, but when I look at producing, when you look at a film that you've produced, it's like, oh yeah, um, 
I selected the composer, I hired the director, I made the script changes there, you know, I had the final uh, 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 say on the edit. So when you look at a film that you've produced, you think, wow, I'm all over this place. As opposed to as, uh, when you're an actor, sure, you've got your role and you try right. to expand it and make it impactful and layer the character. But still, you're at the mercy of the director, the producer, the editor. Um, but when you produce, you've got you're all over that screen, which is kind of fun. It's kind of fun. And so and then and then we'll talk about that with the Emmys. But, Paul, what question you have so far for David about acting? Oh, my gosh, um, David, I've seen you in so many things. You cannot believe it. Um Awesome. I, I don't really have a question for you. I'm just amazed at, at your talent and, and looking at you here in person, you know, sort of thing. It's like, I, I appreciate that, you know, so. Well, so Thank you. Perfect. Thank you, Paul. I really, I change my look in everything I do because that's part of, part of my thing. I just, I just feel that you've got to really, I did a film down in New Zealand called In Her Line of Fire opposite Mariel Hemingway. And uh, they, they, the director said, you know, I don't see you as a, a psychotic Marine. I just don't see you. So I go, give me six weeks. I see a jar head cut. I see hats. I'm going to bulk up. And uh, we got down to New Zealand. I did my first take running through the jungle with this, you know, this uh, gun. And and I, I could feel the director just saying, oh, I got my <laughs> Back to the Neil Haley Show. My guest today is Dr. Terry Zachary. And Dr. Terry is a sports chiropractor. How are you, Dr. Terry? And tell us kind of that journey of how you became a sports chiropractor. Well, Neil, I'm doing well. Uh, I was a sports chiropractor. First, I was a sports junkie. Um, and to become a sports junkie, you either stay average or you learn how to do the sports. And you have to learn mechanics at some point. Uh, as we've talked about before, I'm a Canadian, so hockey was first. It has to be by law up here. And then uh, basketball, but but golf was really the thing that got me going. I got really into the mechanics of golf and how the body moved, and it was just seemed like a natural step when I chose my occupation to go into sports chiropractic. And what's the difference between a sports chiropractor and a regular chiropractor? Well... You know, it's just it's just almost like an adjunct of a regular chiropractor. So my practice was actually about fifty percent family practice, fifty percent sports chiropractic. Um, but when I when you we go in to be a chiropractor, and then you kind of take some side courses and develop your sports training. Um, mine was well back. They they have quite sophisticated trainings for chiropractors now to become a sports chiropractor. Um, mine was a little lighter, a lot of courses. Um, but then just a lot of practice, uh, again, a lot of hockey players, a lot of golfers. That was really my niche. Um, and then you can learn the mechanics of that to apply them to all types of, uh, activities and especially repetitive grip problems was one of my specialties. Uh, so let's talk about specifically enough, who comes to see you as a chiropractor for sports? Well, uh, almost, I mean, you'll get almost every athlete, uh, looking to, maximize the balance and the function of their of their spine and extremities so you you virtually see everybody um again where i was drawn to was my basically my love interest as a kid i was really drawn to hockey which is uh you know plentiful uh in vancouver was the lower mainland where i practiced um but then also golf was really uh a big thing around here too and and it doesn't seem like similar sports, but the gripping side of things, the motion side and creating creating strength to shoot a slap shot and hit a golf ball are actually very similar. Different plane, obviously, but only slightly. And so a lot of the injuries from those uh, were very similar. Uh, so then you could equate that into many other sports like soccer, but, but it was uh, soccer, basketball, football, volleyball, everything. But mine was mostly uh, the mechanics of hockey and golf. What happens with injuries of golf that they need to see a chiropractor? 
Yeah, well, uh, um, the biggest injuries would well, it's a flip. It's a flip of the coin between uh, back injuries, anything to do with the spine. There's obviously it's an imbalanced situation. You have one arm lower in the club than the other, so it's an imbalanced sport. And you can even look at professional golfers on TV and look at their shoulder height and pretty much tell if they're left-handed or right-handed. But the biggest thing that I would see in golf. When you accumulate everything uh, as far as hand, wrist, carpal tunnel, thumb, uh, elbow injuries, and forearm injuries, those are all the very, very similar on the cause. So I would say that elbow down is the biggest injury in golfers. And then you balance that off with spinal injuries for the most popular ones. All right. Let's so and. The spinal injury injuries. A lot of people, if you want to see a sports chiropractor, is that a all lifetime thing where you want to be able to perform the best because of constant injuries that you can occur? Yeah, or, you know, yeah. yeah, it absolutely is, uh, Neil. And and we think about it. We, we used to talk about it a lot, and we're not, you know, in that situation. I, I know there's this kind of this mindset though. Well, you got to start seeing a chiropractor all your life, and if you start, you're going to stay all your life, and. It's a, it's a balancing mechanism thing. And if you're in a sport where the training is imbalanced, like if I'm grabbing a weight, for example, all the time, and I'm going to squeeze, 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 well, that's going to create imbalance. Or if I'm a golfer and I'm, uh, you know, hitting shots from the right side all the time and that rotation is similar, you're going to create imbalance. So if your workplace or your daily habits is creating constant imbalance, you need to have mechanisms to offset that imbalance. So it's it's basically keeping up with the imbalance of your daily habits, whether that's a sport or whether it's, you know, just getting the kids to school, packing a lunch and squeezing and flexing and hunching. Um, we're inherently bringing ourselves into some type of imbalance. So definitely, uh, I know I've, I see a carpenter, I'm out of practice right now and I, I get checked every couple of months and, and uh, that's just the way it goes because life brings its imbalances. We have to have some way to keep in balance so our, our body works properly. What do you see in sports performance by going seeing a chiropractor? Have you seen increased sports performance for your athletes? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that happens, uh, it's a good question. One of the things that comes to mind right off the bat, Neil, is is just the concept of having your body in balance. And it's 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 such a big thing and it's very under very underappreciated in our world. If my body's on its vertical center, every joint that hangs, you think of your shoulders, we think of the knees and the ankles right away, or the hips, knees, ankles, because they're weight bearing. But if my body's on its vertical center, now my shoulders are on their vertical center, like all joints are actually on their, uh, according to physics, now on their vertical center as well. If I have slight imbalances, or I have, you know, hunching and slight imbalances to the side, all of a sudden, every joint that is, uh, every joint that has anything to do with comparing to gravity is not on its vertical center. And over time, using those joints off their vertical center puts them more at risk. Well, risk, and then you're not going to perform well, right? Well, uh, certainly not perform well. And yeah, you, you're looking at strength and stabilization, uh, and you're looking to perform your task of, I'm going to hit a drive on a golf course. Uh, and I have, the other thing, there's so many subtleties about the joints. When I say a joint is out of balance, that body in uh, intricately knows the, the balance of a joint. So uh, it will, uh, you do have mechanisms uh, within each joint that will actually bring them into subtle protection and that will make them weak. So definitely to bring your, to have your body uh, free of any uh, interruption as far as uh, any protection in the joints itself will make them stronger inherently. Absolutely. Well, it seems like they definitely will. And that's the, the thing and in, in, in performance and athletes more and more now are looking at how they optimize things. Absolutely. Keep their career longer. Have you worked with any celebrity athletes in Canada? Oh, we've worked with some hockey players. We've worked with, uh, it's interesting because we, the, the product that we develop for hand exercises, we do something because I saw so many um, professional golfers and hockey players specifically uh, would do nothing for grip or they would take something and squeeze it on a regular basis. Um, I'm not even allowed to say the names if uh, I can't really use ours to promote any product. So I've got to watch the names. But there was in an NBA finals, there was some dislocated.
We're back to the Neil Haley Show, and I'm so excited to talk to this amazing woman. She's a spiritual teacher. She is a healer and an author, and much, much more Mirabai Davy. Mirabai, thanks for stopping by. I'm so excited to hear about your story and how you're helping so many people. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me on the show, Neil. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. So which one do you want me to answer first? No, let's just go because we're only going to get a couple of questions and we're going to have more than part one, part two. But tell us about how you kind of found your gift. How did that happen? Yeah. So how I found my gift was really when I was three years old and I was spiritual and I was talking to light beings and I was aware of the spiritual world and I was aware of a calling, a deep spiritual calling. And I knew that I had a purpose and a mission. And it took me a while to figure out why I'd come back into this world. Well, fast forward, I went back to sleep at seven years old, woke back up at 17 years old, became a vegetarian and looked into astral travel as why am I astral traveling every night and what is happening to me and what does this mean and why am I able to communicate with these angelic beings and then that's when my gifts started downloading from there. So define astro travel for me, for some people that might not know. Yes, yeah, so astro travel, and many of you may have experienced it, is when you find yourself floating above your body at night, whether you're awake or dreaming, and you're able to fly and travel into other worlds, planets, locations, realms, and you may or may not be aware of where they are, but typically you have a guide that's with you on that journey. So that's how it began for me when I woke up again for the second time at 17 years old. Once you figured that out, you said, well, what does this mean? Were you, were you questioning yourself at first when you knew you had this gift and were doing it at 17, astro traveling? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I felt the peace which passeth all understanding. And I felt that I had a direct connection to the divine and to the light, but I couldn't figure out how I was able to come and go to these other planets and realms. And it seemed like it was fairly normal for me, but my mind was doubting and questioning, like, how come this isn't happening for other people? How come nobody else is talking about this? How come everybody else seems landlocked into their body and they don't want to talk about the spiritual worlds? Oh, wow. So that's, that's that you're right. They don't want to talk about, they don't want to do things. So what was your next phase? Because everyone's like, oh, you're that, that that's not real. You can't, you, you're not able to do things like this. You're not able to find out information or figure out certain things. So you had to really kind of go out and find someone as people probably are listening and watching right now that could be in the same position you were in. Or, or questioning things that needs to talk to someone like you? Yeah, actually, I'm an interdimensional guide, and I am the teacher that I never had. So my goal was to become that teacher that I couldn't find to answer the questions that nobody could answer. So if you're out there, and you're experiencing astral travel, or you're experiencing floating above your body, or you're seeing angels or light beings, or you're having communication with the higher worlds or dimensions and nobody's able to talk with you about that or answer that for you i am and i'd love to talk with you about that so reach out to me so how are you able to help people based on what you do so i'm able to help people based on what i do because i'm able to take where people are at and i'm able to take what i know through being connected at a higher level to these higher worlds, higher consciousnesses, and higher light beings to lead them on the journey from A to Z because I've walked that path already. So I know what that path looks like. I know where they're going, and I know what they need in order to walk that path and make that journey. So I can hold their hand and use all the many tools that I've been gifted to be able to teach them how to do it themselves. So other people can do what you do if you teach them. Other people can do what I do if I teach them and if they come into training with me of some kind. So it doesn't matter if you have the gift or don't have the gift, Mirabai? You know, that's a good question, Neil. I would say that anybody who awakens to any form of gift would be the best candidate 
for working with me, even if it's negative, even if it's like, oh my gosh, I'm having nightmares and scary experiences, I can still help them with that. If they don't have a gift and they want to develop a gift, it takes more training and more work than if they naturally already have the gift awakened, but it still can be done. What are you able to discover with this gift? Like, tell me things that that kind of, I'm sure people need to see your live events or your other types of events. What types of things are you able to do once you have this gift? Oh, so many things, Neil. So in my programs, I offer light transmissions. I offer communication with light beings and traveling into higher realms and dimensions. I offer intuitive readings for people to see the cause of their pain or illness or condition or problem or conflict. I help them to heal their heart, to heal their body physically from pain and suffering and illness. I help people work through emotional issues. And then I help people to really connect with their own gifts and their life purpose and their own unique path. So there are so many different aspects to somebody's awakening, to their spiritual awakening or their healing process, that it just, it, it runs all the way full gamut from A through Z. So we have to start somewhere, right? And we start with just, I go into a state of consciousness and they ask me questions. And I'm able to answer those questions that maybe nobody else has ever been able to answer for them in their whole entire lives. And then I'm able to see things that nobody else can see for them and give them the answers through what I see by putting vision on the levels that most people cannot access because they're not available even to psychics or spiritual teachers unless they go to the highest spiritual realm or worlds. What makes you different between a, than a psychic or astrologist in certain ways? Yeah, mm -hmm. A psychic typically is somebody who can go into the astral planes. A spiritual teacher is someone who can go into the higher astral and causal planes. The higher astral and causal planes are areas where there are very... Back to the Neil Haley Show, and I'm excited first to welcome my co-host, and we're syndicating it on his network, Smarter Than I, the day as well, Cowboy347, Damon Harbour. Damon, what's up, man? And I know you're excited about our guest. Oh, man, what's up, man? I'm super excited to be here, and I am on purpose. Yes, Lord. Oh, yes, no doubt. And, and I'm excited. He is a director, and he's directed one of Bruce Willis's final films. I'm excited to welcome Jared Cohn to the program. We're going to talk about Vendetta and much, much more. Jared, thanks for stopping by, man. And I always talk to directors, and the first thing I think about when I talk to a director is the difference between a director and a producer. And I love getting this kind of uh, defining the two. And, you know, and, and people don't understand that sometimes the director – is just given this this script, given all these things, and tell them, now make it look perfect. While a producer, someone who has the idea and and produces it in two different ways. If it's an executive producer, it's their idea. If it's a regular producer, they're producing the final product. But can I define the difference between a director and producer? I'm sure when yeah. you talk to people on the streets, they say something different, right? You know, if you ask a thousand different people that question, you'll probably get uh, twelve hundred different answers. Uh, it's overlapping and, and and usually usually starting from the top the executive producer usually is the money guy who hires the producer to basically do everything but the director is sort of a it's like the only person hired uh, hired either by the producer or the executive producer but every everyone else the produce like the movie crew is hired by the 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 producer and and the but the cast the actual actors um is 
hired usually by an executive producer or a financer because that that's the uh how they're going to get their in, in investment back so it's so complicated you know the uh and and, and there's a co-producer or there's associate producer so, or executive producer <laughs> there's really no answer it, it, it's it's yeah i'm sorry yeah, I see the, the movie I see on the tv show entourage I'm sure you watched it, you know, on HBO and all that. When the directors are the crazy ones, right? And I'm not, I'm not going to ask you. You kind of different because remember how they were trying to land certain directors for certain films in that in, in Entourage, and you know, at their party and they're doing these different things. And then once they get on set, they're focused and it's like their baby. But if they're anywhere else, they're just having fun, being no, creative. That's, that's yeah, you. No, I'm, 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 I'm a whack job. I'm total. I'm a total like. No, case, but put me on a set and I have a focus and I can do, I can do that job. I can create and, and, and I see things clearly, but yeah, I mean, I, I could, I'm the type of guy that could, uh, that cooks a salad, you know, burns a salad. But that's okay because you have your super genius, but go ahead, Cowboy, with your question for, for Jared. Man, um, first of all, I just want to say, man, it's an honor to be here with you, Jared. Uh, being in a Thank moment you. of history when one of our greatest stars is now retiring uh, being Bruce Willis, and you partook in one of his last movies of his great catalog. Uh, I got to ask you, before we dive into the complimentary aspect of your phenomenal project that you have to promote, what is it um, that you took in the most from working with uh, Bruce Willis um, that brought that brought, brought about self-gratification, you know, um, in yeah. your career, to be to witness that, yeah. I mean, to have, I mean, just by having that, a person of that caliber physically, like on the set, it, what happens is everybody around them, like raises their level up because, the, because they know that this guy was on, you know, he's gone Tar star Tarantino movie. So the experience, it's almost like a feeling. It's, it's, it's not necessarily something, they don't have to do anything. They just stand there and, and their presence alone raises the bar because nobody wants to look like an idiot in front of Bruce Willis. No, but nobody wants to like right. get online or, you know, have a camera shot out of focus. So right. everyone's like, so that experience, I'll, yeah, I'll never forget that. It's like almost when, uh, you know, the kids are talking in the classroom being loud and then the teacher walks in. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. And so, and that was one of them. And what, when you got to work with him, did you know that if he was going through what he was going through, Jared? No, no. I uh, um, found out, you know, after like, uh, like everybody uh, else, but um, yeah, I wouldn't have. Wow. You know, said, well, yeah, there's something going on. Like, I, no, he came in. <laughs> I mean, he, wow. he, and, he, and he, and he did a great, you know, job and, and. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's crazy. You never know. Well, you never, never know, know what somebody's going through. Uh, and I hope. Yeah, I just really hope he's okay. I mean, um, and I don't. I I don't know any other details that you know. But yeah, craziness. In in regards to your journey, um, in filmmaking and in your journey in Hollywood, like to to put yourself in a position to to you know, meet these creatives in this space to help, you know, uh, touch the world, right? Uh, what was some things that was the, what was the most prevalent uh, or rewarding uh, um, ingredients that you attained, right? From good and bad experiences in Hollywood that you feel, you know, made you mature enough to handle the responsibility to meet stars like DMX, you know, Mike Tyson and, and Bruce Willis, William Shatner. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a great question. Um, you know, just, I've been doing, it's, it's crazy because I've been doing this for over 20, you know, over 20 years. So my entire youth, you know, right after high school, I came, moved to LA with, and, and, and big stars in my eyes, you know, first trying to be an actor and then that didn't really work out. So I became, you know, switched to filmmaking and, 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 and just of that, that journey of, years and years and years it really it taught me and pretty much it defined me kind of who I, I every you know who I am and, and and I didn't know I had such the ability to uh, I guess persevere when you know, it's just like you if I step back and I'm like damn I can't believe I you know I went through all I did all that and 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 
look at it to be able to look at it differently. So it teaches it. It taught me everything, but 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 at the same time, I don't know anything else. You know, I could have went wow. and become a a teacher or something, right. and, and I'd be a different person. I maybe I would have very little, uh, you know, grit in me, and and, and would fall like a, a lawn chair. I don't, you know, just be, but this town just this town beats you up. The industry like <laughs> so brutal. Right. It is, especially the way funding is now and how difficult it is to make a film and all that. And one thing that we didn't bring up is you're an actor, too. So you have a different mindset as a director because you were acting for so many years and yeah. acting in horror movies. I was looking at, you know, who you've worked with. You know, Robert Carradine's been on my show. You can go back to what listen to one of the interviews he when he was doing one of the things with the the West. I'm looking at your thing now. David Chokichi was on my show as well. Yeah. So uh, there's certain people I've run into just, you know, in radio interviews I've interviewed. But the thing that you bring to the table is how many directors have really been an actor, a professional actor, you know, has worked so many acting gigs that kind of makes it a little different relationship on set versus a director that really never act, acted. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, uh, man, I, I would probably suck as a director if i didn't start as an actor like i just don't i wouldn't even know where to begin and i see a lot i mean i see uh you know some directors that i've, I've had that out of movies that i've acted in you know i'm having some and, and the way they approach things it's so it's so i'm not saying bad because i don't want to say someone else's directing style is bad but i i, I i've seen the experience of having the you know a talking to other actors as an actor after a director gives mm. you know their blocking instructions and you're just like very confused like you're just like i think he wants me to or she or she wants me to come in here and like there's a, a little bit of uncertainty so i think having that acting background is was paramount yeah it was just like okay now i know i can i, I i'm an actor i know how to talk to actors because talking to actors about how to act in a scene i mean think about that it's very abstract it's a very right. weird thing like uh so yeah uh, i'll definitely say it helped uh, to what extent uh you know uh, I, don't, I don't know because it's so much over overlap <laughs> so Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and Strategic Wealth Strategies stars. And I'm excited first to welcome the host, Alan Porter. Alan, what's going on, man? I know you're excited about our guest. Yeah, uh, I've read some of the stuff we've got. That's, you're thinking outside the box uh, like I do and saying, you know, reinvented yourself. And I've reinvented myself a couple of times. I retired military and had a mortgage and banking. I'm in a mortgage and real estate business. And now I'm a financial advisor for the last over, over decade now. But uh, I really like what you're doing. Absolutely. So our guest is John McEntee. He's the founder and CEO of a new dating app for conservatives, The Right Stuff. I love the name. So you have Thank to you. like, you, you, so you remember, where did you guy first to come with The Right Stuff? I like the whole analogy too with The Right Stuff. But do you have a song or am I thinking across the line with The Right Stuff? How did you come up with that name? Actually, the name was given to me by a friend of mine. She thought it was a catchy name. I think she's very into space. The Right Stuff is obviously a very famous movie. It's been a novel. It's been a TV show. It's been a famous song in the 80s or 90s. Um, so we kind of liked it, and we liked the play on words, The Right Stuff. Uh, so a right-wing right dating app, of course, we thought it fit perfectly. All right, so let's kind of just jump into, John, your background. You've had some experiences in politics. Kind of tell us that background. Yes. So I started as a volunteer actually in 2015 for the Trump campaign. When I showed up to Trump Tower to volunteer, there were about four people on the whole team. So it was very easy to rise through the ranks quickly. You know, I got on the payroll maybe a month later, had a lot of different jobs on that first campaign and ended up traveling with then candidate Trump for the last six months of his campaign. And I uh, saw him with that historic victory. 
then went into the uh, administration and I worked the first year and the last year roughly uh, in the White House with him. Wow. Good, Alan. I'm sure you have some good questions for John. Well, I, I tell you, first off, I am a 100% Trump supporter. Uh, I think he's probably the greatest president of all time. He respects our, our my values anyway. Respect, I mean, but he he's not a politician. And uh, but what you're doing with this app and everything, I, I think it's absolutely great. When I when Neil first told me about it, I said, "Why hasn't somebody thought about this before?" I mean, this is just a great idea. Ahead, yeah, actually, um, actually, the idea has been floated before. People have sort of tried it. And the response has been overwhelming for those people who have tried it. They just they didn't have the team. They didn't have the infrastructure. They didn't have the funding. They couldn't put it all together in a way that we are. And we've been live now for four or five months. The response has been incredible. We're growing on social media. We're at date right stuff. Uh, we have a huge TikTok following that's growing every day. We're reaching a new audience. I think a lot of people that maybe aren't even that political want to be on a conservative dating app because they know it's a little more serious and the people there are dating with intention. Uh, so that's an important thing is you saw who made tons of money in a dating app, uh, one of them, billion dollars, right? It's it's a big industry, isn't it, John? It's a huge industry. Yeah, Match Group is the biggest. They own Tinder. They own Hinge. They own, obviously, Match.com and many others. I think they they peaked at, at last year. Their market cap was like $40 billion. Um, now the market's down, so maybe that's cut in half. But Bumble also is another competitor of theirs, and that's the, probably the second biggest company. And yeah, it's in the billions. Um, we're just trying to be the best and the dating app for conservatives. There's a lot of different apps out there. There's a dating app for black people, for Jewish people, for single parents. There's one for dog owners, for gamers. There's one for everything, but there hasn't been one for uh, the identity most important to people, which is political affiliation, especially being conservative in a culturally left country. So um, yeah, I think we're serving a need and we'll see, hopefully it can continue to grow. Um, well, I think it's great. I mean, you're so afraid to do anything because you're so afraid you're going to offend somebody. What kills me is why, you know, 97% of us are afraid of offending the 3%. And uh, I just don't understand it. Yeah, well, I think that's what Trump tapped into, right? The silent majority. And even with young people, you know, if you're on a college campus or if you're just a working professional, you feel like you have to hide your beliefs. You feel like you can't be open about it. So what we're doing is telling everyone, hey, on our platform, everyone's kind of like you. We all want a normal dating experience. We're all, you know, somewhat traditional in that respect. So you can be yourself and um, have, you know, have a good time. You don't have to worry about that. So let's talk about, so the experiences you learned in the White House, how much do you take that to creating this app? The experiences of just behind the scenes, understanding what the thought process is, because you really knew, learned a lot in the White House, I'm sure. Yeah, and I think more than just the White House specifically, which we can talk about, I think living in New York City and Washington, D.C., two very liberal areas, realizing how hostile it can be towards conservatives made me think why this app is possible, why it can work. Um, I think if you're a young person and you're going out on a date, you're doing some research, you're trying to figure out if this person is aligned politically before you go. It's hard to do. You're spending a lot of time and energy and money. And um, if you don't align politically with with someone in today's climate, it's really hard to date. Uh, so, yeah, just, I think just living in D.C. and New York kind of opened my eyes to that. Well, living in living in New York City right now, that's, that's kind of dangerous to me. I can't yeah. going on there or in all, all these liberal cities. They just uh, there's it's just unbelievable. I, mean, I know people in all of them, they're they're afraid to live in there. They're afraid to go out at night. Because of right. Yeah. And I, I think that's why the app is popular in, in more liberal areas, because conservatives feel like they're in enemy territory. I mean, we're based here in Southern California, where I'm from. Uh, luckily, we're in a conservative area in Orange County. But I know people here that they want to stick together. They want to find the other conservatives. And um, I think the only way maybe is to you know grow out of this problem, an easier way to find each other, an easier way to start a family um, with like minded people. And, and exactly. what's the whole process of getting involved, being a CEO of a company like this? Because you've been involved in big projects, big campaigns. This has to be the biggest for you. 
Yeah, this is the biggest. So when we left the administration, um, two colleagues of, of mine and my co-founders, we were thinking of what to do next. And we wanted to stay somewhat involved in the conservative movement, but we wanted to do something different. And obviously the alternative tech things are popping up. You see the alternatives to Twitter with True Social and Gitter and Parler. Um, so we knew something in tech would be fun. Social media was already tapped into. The idea for the dating app came from some friend of, friends of ours and we thought about our own experience. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast to the Neil Haley Show and the Love is Podcast. I'm excited to welcome the host, Kim Sorrell. Kim, how are you? You're in Egypt. You're traveling. Last week, we're somewhere else. Go figure. And I appreciate you coming by again. It is my pleasure, Neil. It is great to see you. I'm very excited about our guest today, Carl Horseman. I am so excited to talk to you, Carl. You have done so much starting out at Turner and all the things that you did there. And then starting your own studio, starting your own production company, and your passion for for faith-based films, but great stories, like redemptive, wonderful, incredible stories, and it seems like nothing's off limit. Carl, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. Yes. Well, we're very excited to have you. Uh, so you are passionate about doing films, it seems, that are real-life stories about people who have done some incredible things, like you're um, on a wing and a prayer coming out and, and other stories that you've done. Uh, why is that, or what is your passion there? Well, I, th- I think so often in our in our lives these days, we see so much negativity in the news and so much around us with the all that's going on in our culture. I think it's important that we, you know, when when there's a great story of of God's redemptive love and 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 salvation, I think it's it's great to be able to hold that up and just say, hey, look, people can overcome uh, as they lean on the Lord to to help them do so. And I think it's uh, an important thing for us to remind not just uh, each other but ourselves from time to time of. What I'm seeing, Carl's happening is that the Christian film industry is growing leaps and bounds, and people are saying yes to these films. One reason is family friendly. Now, the reason there's a mission, and a, and finally, the fact that hey, there is a light at the end of the tunnel in life at the end, but also during that you can go through adversity. People want to have these inspiring films, and this is what keeps cropping up more and more of them, right? Uh, that is true, and I think a, a lot of that has to do with uh, Hollywood has finally recognized, I believe, that that faith films is not just a niche, which is what it had been for many years, but it's actually uh, a legitimate genre in the eyes of so many of the Hollywood studios and the people that uh, are the gatekeepers and push these projects forward and uh, allow us to have the platform to tell these inspirational stories. So I think that's been a big, big, uh, a big help to us as more and more filmmakers have entered the space and have grown uh, in their storytelling abilities. The stories are getting better. The films are getting better. The television shows are getting better and uh, and more entertaining. And I think uh, filmmakers are uh, achieving a bit more of a, of a platform to be able to tell these stories that are so inspirational, like you said, Neil, that I think raise people's uh, awareness and help them to see that they can overcome too, that uh, nothing is so bad that they can't overcome. Which is so, so, so important. You know, I think too, one of the things that you do so well is you make everything so uh, comfortable and so familiar like people can put themselves in positions of different people that uh, different characters that you've had on your films and it's just so relatable that i think people can see themselves in so much that you do which is also such an important thing that you go away from one of your films going holy cow i could do that i can overcome i can be better which is so cool but there's got to be some kind of an art to that because not everybody can do what you do. 
So uh, what is your background there? Like, why are you so darn good at what you do? Oh, well, thank you for saying it. I think it, you're, I'm very blessed to have it's a great team of people that I've been fortunate to work with over the years. And I think uh, Alfred Hitchcock said it best. I think, you know, what what are the three components of a great film? And it's story, story, and story. So I think uh, that's been really uh, what has been um, the key to any success that any of us have in this business is the story. And I think that starts with the true story of the, of the real people and, the, and what they went through. And so often they've stepped out in faith after the fact and written a book or, or pu- let their stories be published and uh, put out there. And then uh, writers are able to, to latch on to those things. And with their most recent project uh, on a wing and a prayer, which is about a, a, a true story of a pilot, a dad rather gets on an airplane with his uh, wife and two kids heading back from his brother's funeral and, um, he had very limited pilot experience, virtually none. And the pilot on the plane, uh, five minutes into the air, passed away in uh, of a heart attack. And dad had to either land the plane or or perish with his family. So um, he had told that story. And our, our writer, Brian Edgiston, who was himself interested in flying back uh, many years ago, had, was taking a class and heard that story in class. They were actually, uh, the instructors were saying, hey, listen to this air traffic control conversation between this, you know, this neophyte and this air traffic controller trying to help talk him down. And he heard that, reached out to the real life person. His name was Doug White and uh, asked Doug if he could tell his story. And they hit it off and became friends. And Doug trusted uh, Brian to do that. And then Brian wrote the script and brought in uh, some other friends and producers. And we all kind of jumped on to try to figure out how to elevate that story. So that's kind of how that happened. And so often it's stories like that. Yeah. You know, what I noticed is I watched a portion of that film, uh, you know, you know, we're streaming and things like that. What I loved about the fact, wow, could you imagine that happening to, to see that you're, the pilot dies in the air and you're having to go and fly and just learn how and hey, the, the chances. But those are the kind of stories that give people hope, especially when they're not feeling well. Because there's a lot of people, Carl, right now that are that are not feeling great, need that inspiring message, or just didn't have a great day, woke, didn't wake up well, didn't feel like their normal self. And they need to have that inspiration that I can overcome anything if they can overcome. And that's mm-hmm. so true. What are the latest projects that you guys are doing right now as a production company? Well, uh, uh, the Wing and a Prayer film with uh, Dennis Quaid and Heather Graham is out right now on Amazon Prime. So that is available for streaming, just came out. Uh, and then we had another film that released in theaters that it's available on Up TV called Southern Gospel, a true story, again, about a, uh, a pastor uh, who was a rock and roller in the 60s. And he had some tragedy in his life and a car crash that killed uh, one of his bandmates. And uh, he was able to overcome and uh, realize that his true calling wasn't necessarily the rock and roll stage, but was that of the pulpit and uh, started a church down in Florida that's still going today and has really helped a lot of people. So that's a great story that was set in the 60s and 70s for our movie, but really is about, uh, and the director uniquely was, it was uh, the true story of his dad. And uh, so it was a fantastic family uh, story and family film. So we did that one. And then up and coming, we've got uh, a French and Indian uh, war movie that we shot that is really, um, doesn't sound like it being a war movie, but it's really about the struggles of these real life heroes that in 1763 that overcame to to save uh, a lot of families and reunite a lot of families on both sides of that divide. And uh, so we were excited about that project. And then uh, the one that I'm most passionate about right now is um Again, a true story about uh, this prison in Louisiana, Louisiana State Penitentiary, often referred to as Angola. It was the most violent prison in America and also the largest maximum security prison in America. And in the 90s, they uh, put uh, a, a seminary in there under a lot of controversy. They allowed the inmates to attend this seminary. And part of that curriculum was this uh, Bible study called Experiencing God, where you uh, it's a study that really just focuses on where you see God working and go join in and uh, be part of what God is doing. And so often I think we are trying to get God to be a part of what we're doing. Um, and we step back and we see we, that we can help others and start pouring into others. We ourselves are are fed and uplifted. And I think that's the the, the message of that film. But that's that prison was turned around in very short order from being statistically the most violent prison to be one of the most modeled prisons in America 
with uh, them ultimately graduating um, inmates out of the seminary and turning that prison around and then sending them out um, like disciples two by two to mission to prisons all over Louisiana and making a huge change in the culture of those prisons. And just to think, like you said, Neil, it just brings hope. And so often we uh, don't think of these uh, prisoners as, as places, but they're very dark and, and lacking in that. And these, these men and women in these uh, that are incarcerated need hope as well. And, the opportunity to see that uh, they can better themselves and come out and be a real benefit to society. So it's it's a great story of, of God's redemption. No doubt. For well, sure. what a great story to tell because uh, so many people have such. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.